Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Well, hello and welcome to Matters of Life and Death. Um, thanks for joining us. Uh, as always, uh, I'm Tim White and I'm here with my dad, John. How are you, John? Yeah, very well, thanks. Great. So so we're um, going to talk today about the, the ever so hot button topic of, of evolution and creationism. Um, I can almost hear the intake of breath from from some people on the other end of the of this. This is this is obviously an intensely kind of controversial and contested quite bitter at times dispute and debate within Christians, um, let alone with the outside world. Why do you think this evolution and creationism has become so polarised? Yeah, well, of course, it's not a new issue, is it? I mean, it goes all the back to the Victorian era, to um, particularly Darwin mm. and others who were uh, initially um, finding evidence for both the age of the earth and, and so-called common descent, which we'll, we'll talk about a bit later, but it has. I am struck by how extraordinarily heated and sometimes vicious the debate has been between Christians mm. and uh, and just speaking personally. You know, I, I've spent quite a lot of time speaking about matters of life and death in various different public settings. But to be honest, I I studiously try to avoid the question of um, evolution when it's raised because. I, I know it's so divisive and I haven't and I felt it was distracting. I, I felt it wasn't really the main issue which I was trying to engage with. But um, what, what, what are your thoughts about that? Yes, yeah, similarly, in some sense that it certainly felt when I was kind of growing up in the in the church. So the kind of the, the noughties, it, it felt like it was the or it was perceived or projected to be the kind of the great dividing issue within kind of evangelical Christianity that I was swimming in, that, you know, there were lots of sort of things that the church was at odds with, with the outside world um, to be expected. But the thing that Christians really disagreed with among themselves was this kind of issue of, do you believe in evolution? Do you believe in six day creation? How old is the earth? And kind of associated issues. And, and like, to be honest, I, fa- I remember feeling at the time slightly bemused and even a little frustrated about why it was so prominent and why, you know, my youth group at church would have, you know, entire special kind of Saturday afternoon sessions where we would come in and debate this and and people would try and persuade each other of their beliefs and, and throw different books around and, and websites they'd found. But it just seemed to me, you know, I, I, I had a position, I had a view, I'd thought about some of the issues, but I just couldn't figure out why it was important. It didn't seem that relevant. And I'm pretty confident, you know, in in my position. But I, if I get to glory and find out I was wrong, I really won't care that much because how the Earth began is just seems very secondary compared to a lot of stuff that that we could be arguing about. Yeah, and, and I think it's interesting because what I've noticed is that people on on both sides of the debate, so so those who would believe passionately in either young Earth creationism or in so-called intelligent design on one side and those who would believe in so-called guided evolutionism christian evolutionism um, on the other side both sides accuse the other of a kind of fundamental betrayal of god a a betrayal of the gospel Uh, so i i think those on the creationist side or the intelligent design side believe that 
the others are somehow uh, ref refusing to stand up for the uniqueness of Christianity and for the evidence of the supernatural involvement of God in life on earth. And at the same time, those who come from the guided evolutionist uh, side would be accusing the creationists of of, of taking a kind of simplistic uh, anti-science perspective and of and of quotes poisoning the wells in sometimes of of discussion of, of Christianity and science. Yeah, I really really relate to that as well. I mean, I, I remember very vividly um, when I was at my university Christian Union, we put on some kind of evangelistic event. I think it was a kind of guerrilla Christian thing where there was like a panel of people and you could ask any question, and I some for some reason was on the panel. Uh, even as a as a 20 year old or something like that and and a question came up from the audience i presume from a, from a non-christian about kind of creation and evolution i remember feeling quite frustrated because you know if i'd been asked that one-to-one -one, i would quite quite easily and comfortably kind of bat that away and say well you know i, I don't think you know my personal view is that that the biblical account and christian tradition is entirely like in, in consonant consonant with modern evolutionary theory and there's no conflict whatsoever between what scientists are discovering about the age of the earth and christianity um you know i believe that god is a creator but he clearly used evolution as his method of creation let's move on to talk about jesus the resurrection the cross the by the biblical accounts the gospels you know the, the stuff in apologetics that really counts but I couldn't do that on this event because I was, you know, in public, it would have been chucking half the other members of my CU, my brothers and sisters in Christ, under the bus. And so I had some kind of mealy mouth. Well, you know, there are different positions in the church and people have different views. And, you know, it's one of the areas of Christian disagree on. And it just felt I felt quite frustrated because I was like, that was that was um, sucking attention and oxygen and fundamentally it felt like cheapening and diminishing the strength and power of that evangelism and that witness because I had to kind of tiptoe around in my view the inaccurate theories of, of my fellow Christians. Yeah so I do think that one of the most important things therefore is to try to find things that we can agree on um, even if we come from very different positions about um, that uh, in, in this debate. I think we need to to look for areas of common agreement we we need also just to debate these issues in a in an appropriate and christian way don't we so instead of accusing one another of betrayal uh, of ignorance or of lack of knowledge of the bible or whatever uh, we need to listen carefully to those we we differ from and and not to caricature or or demean the views that other people have uh, yeah, I also think there's a real need for kind of an injection of humility and uncertainty into this whole conversation. And, mm. and just to kind of accept that, you know, for for 99% of us discussing this, we're not either, you know, evolutionary biologists or geologists. Uh, and we haven't, you know, dug down through layers of sediment and explored dinosaur fossils or carbon dating. You haven't? I haven't personally <laughs> had the time, unfortunately. Uh, and on the other side, you know, we're not most of us also have not spent you know time learning ancient hebrew to unpick you know in the minutiae of the genesis account and so the vast majority of us need to kind of acknowledge that we are kind of amateurs treading in sh in the shallows here and that doesn't mean that we can't talk about these issues of course it doesn't but it does mean that we need to acknowledge that there is great uncertainty on both sides you know the scientists are still discovering things new every day 
and ultimately most science is done by non-believing kind of secular atheists and so needs to be understood within that context coming from that culture um and also on the same on the flip side the other kind of creationist side needs to acknowledge that you know there are multiple legitimate ways of reading scripture that's always been the truth throughout the christian tradition uh, that people have read genesis in different ways while still being kind of faithful to to, to the to witness of the word of god and so we just need to yeah just turn the temperature down be a bit more generous to the other side and and, and hold our briefs a little bit more lightly perhaps Absolutely. And, and and so I think we both of us need to fess up the same, don't we? Neither of us are uh, huge experts either in uh, personally in being involved in evolutionary biology or paleontology, uh, nor in, as you say, um, world class experts in Hebrew and the original understanding of Genesis and so on. So, but I think what we can do i hope is is sort of just model and debate that uh how christians should at least uh engage with with these deeply polarized uh complex issues and so i i suppose if we're thinking about what we can all agree on i think we start with the idea that god is a creator uh, and that we can all of us uh, act uh, understand and, and believe that there is this extraordinarily intimate uh, relationship between God as the creator and uh, of everything. And of course, I think one of the fundamental points that, that immediately comes is that in the past, particularly in the, um, in, in the late medieval period, the early modern period, the idea of God as a sort of cosmic uh, watchmaker, a God who creates this uh, extraordinarily intricate mechanism winds it up and then leaves it to go on its way Th- those ideas became quite current and they seem to fit in with a kind of a mechanistic scientific uh, view of the world that was developing at that time and I think it's really interesting that the, that the sort of fundamental biblical theological view says actually that's quite wrong uh, the relationship between God is not that of a watchmaker and the watch that he makes and winds up. Uh, the relationship is much, much more profound and intimate and mysterious, that, that every atom, every particle of this entire cosmos is literally held in existence every second by the will and participation and action of God the Creator. Yeah, I think that's a really critical point to start on. I think Because I think I have come across before, I think there's a bit of a myth believed by some people on the creationist side which is that if you are uh, on the kind of evolutionary end of the spectrum you by definition you don't believe that you do hold to a kind of watchmaker view of god that that he set it in motion billions of years ago and then has now just retreated to a kind of cloud of dust somewhere outside of the universe and is just kind of like observing from a distance and that's actually not true you know as you say that's that's not a kind of defensible position for any christian regardless of your view of genesis to hold uh you know in him all things hold together you know you could it's it's clear throughout the scripture that that as you say god is god is intimately interwoven throughout his whole his whole created order so what we're really arguing about is not whether god is present or god created it but it's about the mechanism by which god created it exactly that that it's the the exact means that god's use and 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 this deeply mysterious interface of how god works in in the physical world 
I suppose a second thing that we can all agree on is that human beings are unique. Um, you know, whatever view our, our view of as evolution, we all believe that there is a uniqueness about Homo sapiens, which is different from all the other um, from all the other species on the planet, and that that is related to um, the Imago Dei, the image of God, which is which is a reflection of our of our uniqueness. We're specially created and formed to reflect God's character and being. Mm. I mean, we discussed this, you remember, a few months ago with Andrew Davison when we talked about kind of space exploration and the theological consequences of finding kind of new life in the universe. Um, but yes, we did touch in pa passing this idea about the uniqueness of human beings within creation. I think that is pretty kind of broad kind of consensus positions on, on both sides of the debate, for sure. Yeah, and then going on in what, other things that we can agree on, I think, again, all sides of this debate would would agree that human beings are actually made out of the same stuff as everybody else. We're made out of the dust of the earth, uh, and we we share a close biological kinship with all other organisms, um, and that that is is an indisputable reality, and it's a biblical reality that that we are uh, created out of the ground. To be human is to be a groundling. Mm. Yes, and in the same way, I think everyone agrees that human beings um, have been kind of contaminated by, by sin and evil since the fall, what the Genesis describes as the fall. And in that sense, we are, um, we are as affected by the kind of curse of sin as is the rest of creation, and perhaps even more so. Yeah, and then again, just going through what we can all agree on, I think we can all agree on the importance of the Bible we we believe that the bible is not just another piece of literature that it's been god breathed inspired in some way that's sometimes described as the dual authorship of scripture that scripture has two authors it has human authors but it also has the holy spirit as the author and that we need to be constantly open to god to be revealing new truth in the age-old scriptures um that are uh human interpretations of scriptures are not infallible we can get things wrong and therefore we need to have a degree of openness as we listen to one another and debate one another what what the scriptures actually mean i just want to pause there for a second because i think many sometimes people argue that the creationism debate is really a proxy debate about the authority of scripture and you might hear the case that the reason creationists get so hot onto the collar about this is because they see the the, the evolutionary view is 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 a view which is effectively saying the Bible takes second place to what we're learning from kind of atheistic scientists, uh, and that they kind of favour this kind of plain reading of scripture rather than kind of dancing on pinheads and trying to find poetic understandings. The, the argument goes, well, we're just looking at the Bible and seeing, taking it as truthful on its plain reading, and that, and we need to hold on to that. And this kind of sophistry about trying to explain away what the Bible says is, is what was really problematic in this discussion. How, how would you respond to that? Well, I, I think that's a, a huge, big topic. And, you know, um, we, we'll come back to it. But I think, in essence, what I, what I would say is that it, it just isn't true that, that Christians who genuinely take biblical authority very, very seriously 
have agreed on this issue. You know, and if we want to name names, I could just name John Stott, for instance, who was universally recognised as a, as a great Bible teacher and as someone who took the Bible, the teaching of the Bible, profoundly seriously. And yet he himself uh, adopted and defended the creation, evolution, create, um, you know, the guided evolutionism position. Tim Keller would be another contemporary example. But you go back into the history, Augustine would be somebody who was clearly... Um, understood uh, Genesis uh, not in a very uh, simplistic or literalistic manner. So, so in other words, um, just it, it just isn't true that those who take biblical authority highly have always adopted a, a literalistic understanding of, of the key passages in Genesis, for instance. Hmm. Okay. Um, is that is that enough on what we agree on? Should we start talking about what we disagree on, do you think? Well, I think the last thing to say is that we do agree about science. I, I think anybody who lives in a modern world has to accept that the scientific method has turned out to be extraordinarily powerful. Um, you know, because um, the evidence that science works is all around us. Um, just the latest advance... Uh, uh, um, evidence, of course, is the pandemic and the effects of the vaccines and so on. But, you you know, you could point to so many. The fact that a, uh, an airliner stays in the air and that we're quite happy, including creationists, are quite happy to get into an airliner or to use a smartphone uh, or whatever uh, is evidence of their confidence and trust in the basic methodology that science, that science operates. So I, I think we have to agree if we're honest, all of us on whatever side we are, that, that science, when it's done honestly and with humility, is capable of providing reliable information about the world. Okay. Um, should we start then with something which I think is is often kind of at the forefront of the kind of points where people, Christians really disagree, and that's the age of the earth or the age indeed of the whole universe? uh sometimes called young earth creationism and this is the idea that uh the bible teaches or can be extrapolated from the bible that that the world is only a few thousand years old often described as about six thousand years old so it was created about four thousand bc um and this is obviously in wild disagreement with with uh the consensus of of science which uh has settled on understanding that the world is the universe is billions of years old and the world is, I believe, at least hundreds of millions. Yes. So um, this is a very fundamental divide between the young earth and the, and the, and the new earth. I think, I think what, what we're unpicking is that when people say, are you for or against evolution? Hidden in that question are, in fact, a whole number of mm. separate questions. And, and Christians differ about these separate questions. And I think what you need to do is unpick the debate and in this podcast, in the next podcast, we're, we're basically going to unpick five different questions, and they are the age of the, the universe, the origin of species, how species develop, uh, the mechanism of, of that selection of species, um, the uh, origin of homo sapiens, of human beings, and whether there's a space-time historical fall. So there are actually five separate highly contested issues and and we're just very briefly going to run through them 
I mean, in terms of the age of the universe, of course, they the issue really is fundamentally related to our interpretation of the Bible and particularly to those early Genesis passages. Uh, and what's very interesting is that uh, historians of, of the interpretation of the Bible point out that it was really only in the age of scientific discovery that there was a great deal of emphasis on this literalistic interpretation and particularly the idea that when it talks about a day in... Uh, the days of creation that they must by definition have been a literal 24-hour period uh, even though of course that creates quite a lot of difficulties because you've somehow got to believe that on the first day of creation when God says there's let there be light that day lasts for 24 hours even though actually the sun isn't created until uh, day three and you know then then how do we define 24 hours and so on so interestingly I think it's only with the rise of um, that uh, the, the the age of science and, and the rise of precision clocks and so on, that biblical um, writers started to think about this question. I, I think, you know, if you were to ask an earlier writer whether we're talking about 24 hours, uh, they might look to view rather puzzled. But, you know, wh why was that important? You know, what is this 24 hours? Um, so I, I, I think that is... There are many Bible scholars who would argue that the days of creation weren't, were intentionally not, in, were never intended to refer to literal 24 hours. And, and I think an interesting aside is if it really is true that Moses was the author of those early chapters of Genesis, which has been the traditional interpretation, Moses had been educated at the highest level of um, Egyptian science and understanding of the universe including astronomy uh, and therefore when he pens those uh, majestic uh, first chapter of Genesis he's doing it as a highly educated uh, man who's who's very well aware of different cosmologies and so on so he's not some naive rustic hmm. who is just uh, making it up as he goes along the other thing that that is important to mention here is that that the the age of the earth isn't something which can be kind of hived off and, and argued about it it really intersects with 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 numerous other fields of science and if 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 scientists are universally wrong and that the world is only six the universe is only six thousand years old that that implies that there has been absolute catastrophic errors on the basics of astronomy physics geology geography you know almost an endless list of things which where which are baked into is the assumption that the world must be millions of years old and, and all these kind of hypotheses and um, theories have been subsequently kind of proved accurate as we've managed to build you know theory upon theory and technology upon technology so so if the if the, if the aging is wrong it's not something that only really affects biblical interpretation it really affects almost the entirety of modern science that's right and, and i personally think as a scientist you know that it's really not possible to, with integrity to maintain that the entire scientific world has got this catastrophically wrong by many orders of magnitude and at the same time use all the benefits of science. I mean, that doesn't seem to me to be a position that is tenable. I mean, you, if you, you could live on a desert island hmm. and believe that the entire world of science is completely mistaken and misguided 
and full of catastrophic errors, but you really can't use the benefits of that science whilst believing that it's all entirely mistaken and flawed. Yeah, I mean, everything from, you know, even something as, as everyday as, you know, how the GPS chip in your phone works to figure out where you are on the world relies on, you know, uh, atomic clocks in satellites spinning around the Earth and all, none of that would work if the Absolutely. world is only 6,000 years old. <laughs> in fact, the GPS system, which we use in our smartphones and every, everybody uses, actually depends on Einstein's law of special relativity. It actually takes account of the way that the timing of what's going on in the satellites is different from the timing that's going on the surface of Earth because we're moving at different speeds and therefore time is stretched. And if, if the equations didn't take into account... Einstein's law of special relativity, they wouldn't work. You know, so you, we're testing out these very, very profound, abstract laws of physics every time you use your smartphone. Yeah, it's effectively every day there are billions of miniature experiments testing out the theory that the world is millions of years old and every single day they all come back. Yes, and I, I think it's really just not credible uh, unless you want to genuinely say that there's no truth to be discovered from science and the only truth is found in, in scripture, it's just not credible to believe that the world can only be 6,000 years old. Well, certainly, I, I, I think both of us find, find that position difficult. I think the next big issue is where do species come from? Is there any relationship between the different species on the planet, the millions and millions of different species, or... In some way, does God intervene to, in some special way, to create each individual species? Uh, and biologists call this common descent, and it was one of the most important insights that Darwin developed, and that was the so-called tree of life, and he wrote in his notebook a famous diagram where he sketched out the way that every single species on the planet were related biologically um, and that we were all descended uh, from one another. And I think this is a really critical point because this is the origin of a lot, I think, a lot of the backlash. It's It was often caricatured at the time and to this day as this idea that humans are descended from monkeys, which isn't really what Darwin was saying. He was saying that humans and great apes share a common ancestor, but it was quite offensive and shocking to, I think, to a lot of kind of contemporary educated opinion, which in the kind of Christendom era had always just taken for granted that mankind was set apart was from the rest of the universe as we talked about earlier and that wasn't simply a spiritual reality but that had to be a physical reality as well and so the idea you know there are cartoons at the time of kind of like just hum like mocking um ris as risible the idea that human beings could could share kind of common descent with monkeys and people i think found it so offensive that that it kind of it almost created in reaction this kind of desire for Christians to come up with alternative theories. Yeah, there was a, there was a wonderful apocryphal statement of a wife of an archbishop who, on hearing that, that humans were descended from monkeys, said to her husband, Oh, my dear, let us hope that it is not true. But, but if it is true, let us hope that it is not widely known. <laughs> <laughs> but so I think... On the one side is the the very strong evidence, both geological and genetic evidence. Now that we've got um, detailed genetic information about the species across the planet, 
uh, they have supported this idea of common descent um, because the um, geological relationships and the genetic relationships turn out to be very closely linked. Um, but there are definitely problems with with common descent and um, it's often pointed out there's the lack of direct evidence of the so-called intermediate forms. Um, what, what happens if, if one species is descended from another? Why don't we find species that are halfway between? Why, why does it seem there's a, a complete difference between an earlier version of the species and, uh, and a later species? And, and so I think that's an, an issue. And, and it still leaves unsolved the question about the origin of life. How did life itself start? Mm. How did we get multicellular organisms? Um, how, does the, how do we get a genetic code and a readout? All those kind of things remain unresolved. And, and what's the alternative then if we were to kind of question and turn our backs on, on common descent and uh, and the kind of naturalistic explanation of the origin of species is there an alternative kind of uh, argument that we could we could instead favor well some people who are who defend uh, intelligent design quotes would uh, as christians would argue that uh, god intervenes in a supernatural way to create every single species that, that though there is evolution within species the actual development of a new species depends on god's um, intervention and but it of course it raises all kinds of questions so apparently there are uh, millions of different species of beetle on the planet so does that mean that god intervenes each time god loves beetles so much especially that he intervenes to create each one and then it turns out the geologists say that 99.9 percent .9 of all species that ever existed on the planet are now extinct so did, was god painstakingly develop developing and in, by special intervention every one of these billions of species that are now extinct and, and 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 why did he do it that way and i guess it also gives rise to the accusation that that's this is a kind of another version of the god of the gaps argument and that we are simply plugging in kind of divine intervention and special creation into the holes of current scientific understanding which seems neat and and great now but in a hundred years time when we've further understood even more about biology and and various other things it, it might it actually kind of is a castle of sand and it can it can be the legs can be kicked away quite quickly as science expands that's right and i think what it tends to do is it sort of focuses the god's involvement in these unusual events like the creation of species but implies that the rest of the time god is not particularly interested in how uh, these species um get on and the rest of the biological life it's only god occasionally intervenes and says oh well let's create a new species now so so it it focuses attention on on divine intervention at very particular points and then tends to downplay or ignore god's involvement with all the rest of biology and, and biological existence on the planet to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. We, we now wanted to talk about uh, the kind of mechanism of, of, of selection. And sometimes, you know, people will have heard the phrase natural selection. Do you want to just kind of briefly explain what that is for those who can't remember their GCSE <laughs> biology lessons? 
Yes. So natural selection uh, was a phrase that uh, Darwin himself came up with. And at one level, it's just common sense. Uh, the, the, the basic idea is that um, spontaneous mutations occur within the uh, DNA code and that most of those mutations will be damaging and will mean that the organisms either die straight away or uh, severely abnormal in some way. But very occasionally there will be a spontaneous mutation which actually brings some advantage to the species and this is usually called evolutionary fitness. And um, the fitness means that there's a greater chance that they will then be able to pass their um, their descendants that, that will survive. They will be able to pass this new mutated genome on to the next generation. And so the way it's perceived is that you have a whole population, you know, maybe several thousand of a particular species. Um, one of them has this uh, new mutation, which means they have more fitness. And then what's going to happen is over the next generations, and it may take another 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 generations, gradually these new, the descendants of this new uh, organism with its mutation will gradually replace the old ones. And if we want to think about natural selection, the pandemic of what was happening with the coronaviruses is a beautiful example of natural selection at work. <laughs> a terrible example, I'm afraid. Yeah, biologically both beautiful and terrible. Because what we do you remember how those new mutations happened, and we heard yes, there's a new mutation happening in South Africa or wherever it was. It, apparently, there was one in the UK. Was it the um, first mutation happened in Kent in one That's individual right. in Kent? And yet, astonishingly, what we discovered was a few weeks or months later, the vast majority of all the infections that were taking place had come from this one mutation. And so that is an an example of natural selection in in process. So uh, Jacques Monod, who's a famous uh, biologist, he summarized it all and said it was chance and necessity. There, there was chance, the mutation, and then there was necessity, which was these iron laws of survival, reproduction, working out the, the fundamental change. Uh, that That's the mechanism by which evolution takes place. And I guess as you've kind of illustrated with with the COVID example, um, this is this is just on a micro level, it's observable fact. You know, it's not it's not really just a kind of spurious idea, but we have seen it. We can see it take place because things like viruses rep reproduce at such a higher rate than than kind of larger organisms. You know, we can observe it in in cells in a petri dish and and, and even in some kind of very small kind of um, organisms happening in real time, we can see the the ones with with advantageous mutations uh, gradually uh, taking over and evolving and changing. Therefore, is there any reason to believe this isn't also happening on a kind of macro scale, on a large scale over millions of years? Is this just kind of a, a settled issue in your mind? Well, the the, the question is: Yes, we can see how natural selection works for evolutionary mutations within species. But what is the evidence that this process can actually change to a mutation to another species? I mean, the, the coronavirus mutants remained coronaviruses. They didn't become smallpox virus. They didn't become 
an HIV virus, um, is it conceivable that um, that natural selection can lead to the change of a new species? And 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 this is where it becomes much more controversial. Uh, the standard view is yes, um, natural selection can explain all the um, all the billions of species that have evolved, and that there was a from one single common ancestor, there was one cell originally, uh, from which every single organism on the on the planet is derived from that common ancestor. Um, but there are interestingly, there's a definite move amongst evolutionary biologists to argue that that sim rather simplistic understanding of natural selection, which is what Darwin and others came up with, cannot really explain. Uh, all the, um, the the variation of of life on the planet, and and so those who are uh, particularly uh, in in within where they would call themselves uh, intelligent design advocates of intelligent design argue that random fluctuation uh, and mutations cannot explain the evolution of complexity, the extraordinary complexity that we see in certain organisms and in particular how can random selection explain how you end up with this exquisitely apparently designed mechanism inside the nucleus which stores information according to an arbitrary code which then has a decoding section which can decode this arbitrary line of of, of amino acids and then use that to build proteins. They say to argue that all that happens simply by processes of random mutation uh, beggars belief. Uh, and and it, I guess that also ties in with the idea that some people have a huge problem with natural selection from a Christian perspective because it allows you to kind of write God's kind of ongoing creative process out of the picture. And again, this is why Darwin was so contentious at the time is because for the first time there was a mechanism to say how a a group of, of organisms could change in quite dramatic ways without there being a guiding hand, as Darwin understood it, without there being someone overseeing the whole process. And the Christians, I think, to this day who find that problematic because um, it, it appears to, to undermine God's kind of ongoing role. How, how do you think about that particular issue? Well, and it's interesting, you know, because the more you unpick the the question of um, natural selection from a Christian point of view, the more complex and problematic it becomes. Because if you take one one issue is chance. Well, of course, in a in a sort of atheistic, materialistic universe, chance has some kind of meaning. It's just random. It has no fundamental process it's simply a random event but then if you ask yourself from a christian theological perspective is there such a thing as chance i, I think you could argue that there is no such thing as chance that, that actually the bible says that every event whether it's so-called quote random or whether it's a mechanistically understood it's still part of god's action and therefore every random mutation in a sense is authored by god it's not it's not a genuinely random event from a theological point of view. That's that's one perspective. And then second, what do we mean by these natural laws of of selection? Well, 
theologically speaking, natural laws can be seen as simply the regularities of the way that God works in the world. Why does something fall under gravity? Uh, answer, because God himself stretches the laws, stretches space-time in order to cause an acceleration force. Is Everything that happens is underpinned by the activity of God who is holding everything together. So, so both the chance and the, quote, necessity are both reflections of God himself working in the world. And, and, and so I, I think you can see that from a theological point of view, these things become much more complex and much more problematic. Is there really a difference between a God who is working through uh, so-called regularities, natural forces, and a God who is intervening at a particular point? It, it's all God's work. Hmm. I guess at this point we're kind of veering towards quite philosophical questions about kind of the determinism of an all-powerful God and and um, how can can God, if God is all-powerful, can, can he be said to kind of, can anything be said to not to be his direct kind of choice and, and, and action? Um, yeah, and, and, you know, and I have to say, having reflected for many years on some of these deep mysteries, this is where I, I do personally struggle with the Christians who regard the processes of genetic mutation as, as just an, a natural way that God is using to create the universe. You know, because I've heard scientists who are Christians say, you know, isn't mutation a wonderful process because this is the way that God makes and designs um, organisms, including human beings. Because, you know, as a paediatrician, I just can't quite go there. I, as a paediatrician, have seen the devastating consequences of genetic mutations mm. for, um, for individual lives. I've seen uh, children whose lives have been completely destroyed by a genetic mutation. I've seen families who've been deeply damaged and wounded uh, and whose lives have been affected and causing immense suffering and so on. And to just say, isn't it wonderful how God uses these mutations is something I, I can't go there really. So, so th this is partly why um, our understanding of the brokenness of the world, um, that, that in some way these genetic diseases are, are point towards a brokenness towards a world which is which is groaning i mean to use the language of the bible the the world is groaning in childbirth it it hasn't come yet to its uh, uh, to its eventual state and 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 so there's a mystery here I, I suppose what i want to say is that biblically and theologically the mystery of the of of, of a fallen, broken world in which genetic mutations occur. They they can be beneficial, but they also cause immense damage and suffering. Is there a parallel there with other aspects of the kind of created order which um, we find problematic? I mean, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is kind of natural disasters, volcanoes and, and earthquakes have caused, you know, countless suffering for humans uh down, down the millennia and yet they're also kind of 
a necessary part of, of kind of how habitats develop, you know, and there are entire kind of islands that exist because and have that particular kind of soil necessary for, for, for various species to thrive because of a volcanic eruption many years ago. Uh, is that just a reality of living in a broken world and maybe mutations are just, are just another facet of that, that, that we are hurt by a lot of necessary parts of, of this world developing and growing? Well, I think this is deeply mysterious and, and, and a difficult area. And it's one which I know uh, a number of Christians who are scientists and, and theologians who, who wrestle with these issues. And I know there are there's deep um, differences in, and, uh, in the way uh, we understand these, these complex issues. And, and I think it drives me again to this sense of humility, you know, that we that we we need to recognize there are many things we don't understand uh the many things that we struggle with um and we shouldn't whatever position we take we shouldn't take such a sort of sublimely confident view that that we've got this sus that we really understand how this all works and, and particularly how god uses um the apparently broken nature of 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 the world you know i think of jesus weeping at the graves of lazarus and others um you could say well you know lazarus death is just a biological process there has to be death biological death otherwise species would completely overwhelm the ecosystem and yet jesus doesn't treat uh death as just a biological phenomenon there's 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 a deep uh engagement there so i think i just i think ultimately to me there, there are deep mysteries here and, and i think there are problems with any one solution whether whether you verge towards the view that natural selection is the way that god uses the world or you or you say no god is intervening specifically but is god still creating variations in genetic code mutations are these part of god's involvement or is is this um just a mechanism just going wrong from time to time hmm. uh, we should probably move on to one of our, some of the other um kind of key dividing lines in this debate um one that comes up a lot as you'll be aware is is how do we understand kind of adam and eve's place in in this discussion uh, and that's really about was there ever kind of biologically historically an original man an original woman uh, if you believe in kind of evolution did that did they well, there was this kind of this, there were there was a kind of hominid, monkey common ancestor, and at some point, from that evolved one man and one woman, which we're all related to, or 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 in fact did did human beings kind of come from a population of hominids more than two, uh, and it was a it was a much more kind of gradual process. Yes, and again, this is uh, an extremely divisive and uh, and complex issue, but certainly amongst um, evolutionary biologists including Christians who are experts in genetics and population genetics and so on there does seem to be a kind of consensus emerging and and that is that if you look back into the species of homo sapiens they say there was never a period when there were less than say a thousand uh, individuals um, at any one time and what was happening during human evolution was as we talked about before there's the gradual emergence of new 
uh, and new individuals and uh, and then the gradual replacement of this population of a thousand or more hominids uh, by the new variant and so on and so on and so it is argued that when we come to modern human beings um, that um, uh, and, and Adam and Eve as described in the Bible they they would have been uh, in in reality there was this process of a gradual of a whole population gradually emerging and that there never was a, a single couple uh, who as described in in the in the Genesis era and um, I, I think this is a, a, a deeply difficult and, and, and challenging issue. I think the first thing to say is I think one needs a certain amount of scepticism about the assured results of population genetics because, you know, in, in the time I've been working in science, I've seen uh, big changes in uh, the understanding of human evolution, in the time scale, in the, where it happened. Uh, and, and I think it's perfectly possible that in the next 50 years, you know, new discoveries, new findings, new mathematical models, you know, we now realise, blah, 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 blah. So, so I think one has to be cautious before you just say, well, yes, science has solved this problem. I think, I think it hasn't, and I think there's going to be continuing debate and discussion scientifically. But I, I think the, the question of whether there was an original Adam and Eve, um, it, is clearly relevant when one comes to to reading um, the scriptures and, and not just the Old Testament, but of course the New Testament, where the um, Paul in particular refers repeatedly to um, the to Adam and his his role in the human race, and then to the fall of Adam, and of course Jesus is described as the second Adam, and I think. Historically, if you look over 2,000 years, uh, the vast majority of biblical interpreters and theologians have viewed this as being re reference to a genuine historical individual rather than a kind of representative um, everyman, as I've heard it described, you know, that um, Adam is just a mythical uh, invention who describes everyman. I don't know what you're, what's your thinking on on that, and what have you what have you heard? Yeah, I mean, I share your kind of sense of holding things lightly because I, you know, I remember when this was being discussed when I was a kind of a young teenager. I remember being confidently assured by someone that you know, interestingly, modern genetics has actually found evidence that there was we are related to one man and one woman, and that seems to have now changed in the following kind of twenty years. And so, I, and as you say, I'm sure it will change again. I, I would be very reluctant as a complete non-expert to kind of nail my colours to any mast here. And I'm kind of just waiting and seeing. Um, I think I, I'm not particularly worried if if the science really does kind of coalesce around this idea that there was a population of hominids from which Homo sapiens emerged gradually rather than two individuals. Because I, I think that, like, frankly, I, I've already come to a way of understanding and reading Genesis, which says that this is not a literalistic kind of science textbook account, but this is a... Uh, a poetic theological um even in some cases kind of polemical uh, uh explanation of of kind of deep truths about god as creator but it's not and i and if, if i'm happy to believe that about genesis one you know and about the days of creation and when the sun emerged and all that stuff 
I don't really see why Genesis 2 and, and accounts of Adam and Eve would have to suddenly be flipped into reading them as being kind of resolutely, resolutely literal. And I, you know, I, I hear that and, and I have some sympathy with it. I, where I think the rubber really hits the road is is the final big division. I mean, that is about a space-time historical fall. Mm. Uh, so orthodox uh, Christianity um, for nearly 2,000 years has viewed there being one moment when human beings rebelled against God and that that moment happened in a particular space-time point and that it then has widespread and catastrophic consequences. And there's definitely a movement among a number of uh, scientists who are Christians uh, to argue that actually that didn't happen, that there was no fall, that this is a misunderstanding of um, of the Bible, and that and they would go on to say that therefore there's a sense in which the natural world is not fallen; it is simply the natural world, um, and this is uh, and 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 there was no point at which. Um, evil enters into the world it's this is just nate and so for instance you know to to talk about a mutation being damaging or you know is is they say it's just a mutation you know a virus is just a virus it's not there is no such thing as natural evil the only evil there is in the world they say is evil which comes from human choices human decisions the rest of nature is not fallen or evil in that sense hmm. yeah this is a really i think one of probably if not the most kind of interesting for me kind of points of contention to tr- and kind of knots to unravel um because as you say the, the kind of it's clear from kind of again from kind of scientific accounts that that injury predation death illness has 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 had to have been occurring for millions of years before there were any hominids at all let alone the actual homo sapiens who could you know fall and, and rebel and and in the biblical account kind of bring in death and crying and pain and disease in, into the natural order so you either say the fall didn't happen in in time in history and kind of is is this kind of more spiritual event which um works backwards and forwards and that kind of thing or as you say you take this kind of other view which is that actually illness death pain um is not outside of that occurring to human beings is actually not a representation of evil at all and is just um part of god's good perfect creation running along rumbling along as it always has done um both of those i can see have have huge kind of problems i'm particularly i'm particularly reluctant to go along with the idea that um that that creation is isn't fallen uh primarily because it just directly contradicts a lot of the new, Te- the new testament where you know the groaning of creation and, and 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 also the old testament about about how um you know god created things that were good and and they have been kind of perverted and corrupted but by humans uh, decision to rebel against his good order and his good rule and about how the the prophecies of of the new earth the prophecies of of god restoring things aren't just to do with human beings they're about the lion lying down with the lamb you know they're about god undoing 
some of the the predation the death the illness the destruction that we see that doesn't affect human beings that it affects affects the rest of creation yeah and i think again you know to come off the fence i find um i am persuaded by the evidence for an old earth um and for i am persuaded for the evidence for common descent that we are um in terms of our biology, we are all interrelated uh, with other organisms on the planet and have descended from other organisms on the planet. But I have difficulty with natural selection, with with believing that this entirely. I think I think the mystery of how um, selection actually occurs is is deeply mysterious and and no doubt there's more to be understood in the future and i i do i feel reluctant to throw away 2000 years of christian teaching about uh, the nature of the fall and the implications of the fall on creation and so on and say oh the christians over the last 2000 years just got it wrong and actually um we now understand that the fall never happened um, but I do see the problems, you know, in, in all the positions. And slightly tongue-in-cheek, I have um, suggested that maybe what we should do is start a new movement uh, instead of intelligent design uh, or guided evolutionism. We should call it intelligent uncertainty. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think actually that's that's the best place to come to, that... that um, all positions, it seems to me, as they currently are, have deep, deep problems, and perhaps we should maintain a thoughtful, critical, uh, and biblical uncertainty about precisely the way that human beings and life evolved on the planet, and about the the nature of evil and the the fallenness of evil and the the brokenness of creation. Yeah, I think that 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 certainly makes a lot of sense to me. I, I mean, I think you know you can look at stuff. In scripture, which you know, the, we talked about it in a previous episode about the idea that the you know the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, uh, you know, there's little hints and chinks there of light that shining through scripture, which you know, I I think it's clear, it's clear Orthodox teaching that Jesus Jesus's death and resurrection were historical events that happened in a particular place in a particular year in history. That is obvious and and unarguable in my view. But at the same time, they have uh, resonance, spiritual salvific resonance that that spreads out in all directions in space and time and breaks out of space and time, and and who knows? I I, I would, as I say, be very hesitant to come down on a particular point because I think, frankly, God in His wisdom has decided not to give us enough kind of knowledge and at this point to, to to know this for sure. But I wouldn't be shocked to discover that in some sense the fall is of a similar pattern, and maybe is both there was an actual human being. <laughs> Uh, an Adam, uh, a kind of early Homo sapiens who did uh, choose to to rebel against God, but at the well, same and time Eve. the fall. Sorry, and don't an forget Eve. Eve. And an Eve, <laughs> but at the same time the fall is is both a a local historical space time event and yet also a cosmic uh, event which spans time and the universe. And, and it's not like if if that particular Adam had been feeling different, got out of bed on the other side of the bed that day, we would still be living in in kind of pre <laughs> pre lapsarian bliss. Like we were always going to fall, and Jesus was always going to die, 
uh, and in some sense these events have already happened before God even you know said let there be light but yeah fundamentally it's mysterious it's uncertain and what feels to me most important is to hold on to the those core truths um, which aren't up for debate which is that is God the creator yes is did God create a good creation yes uh, and has he redeemed it in the in the person of Jesus through his death and resurrection yes uh, and as long as we cling on to these truths I think the we can continue having fascinating debates as both our kind of biblical interpretation develops over time and frankly as we continue to kind of delve further into the book of science and pull out more truths and find more pages that God has written for us to to understand there as well. Yeah as we come to the end of this episode I'd just like to um, quote a a verse which uh, I remember John Stott uh, quoting on a number of occasions in, in a similar kind of context, and it's Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may follow the words of the law. So, in other words, there are secret things which for whatever reason, as human beings, we're perhaps never going to fully know. And we have to accept that those things belong ultimately to only to God. But at the same time, there are things that are revealed. And the things that are revealed belong to us. We can grasp them and they we should pass them on to our children um, so that we can be obedient, so that we can become the people that God made us to be. And so trying to discern the difference between the things that are secret, the things that are hidden, and the things that are revealed uh, is of central importance. And I think we're perhaps coming to the consensus that there's quite a lot about the origins of humanity, the nature of uh, speciation, the nature of life on the planet, uh, and the nature of the evil and fall. These things are, to some extent, still secret and hidden. But what we've got to grasp are the foundations of God's uh, significance of his love, of his uh, redemption, which is available for fallen human beings for the uh, and the nature of the foundations of the reveal, the revelation which has been given to us in Scripture. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. Um, uh, we're going to upload a, a handout that you prepared, haven't? Have, aren't we onto the website? And it will be available um, uh, strongwire.com, which kind of goes, kind of sketches what some of what we talked about, goes into a bit more detail, and and that includes at the end some some helpful books um, if you want to, people want to kind of dig further into this discussion uh, from different perspectives, so you can kind of think about a bit more about the Adam and Eve and common descent and uh, natural selection, intelligent design, and some of these ideas. Um, so do do look look at that on on John's website. But we'll uh, draw this episode to inclusion. Thanks very much, John. Um, I hope it's been interesting and informative to you listening at home. Um, and we'll be back next week with a new episode of Matters of Life and Death. But uh, um, until then, um, goodbye. You've been listening to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable.